The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we again um, want to be found faithful in giving thanks to you. We're mindful that that's what a creation that recognized the testimony of its creator and its God does. We give thanks to you. We recognize that you are good and you do good, that you revealed yourself, you've made yourself known, you've given us truth and help, you've made our paths clear. And sometimes even that's not necessarily as clear in the ways that we would prefer or desire. We we want some of the nuanced details and elements of life when you give us wisdom instead, just the, the grace and the, the means to negotiate challenging things and things that are um, different or unique or required a continued dependence upon you. And we thank you that you've shown yourself faithful and you always will. Help us to have that perspective and to, to let truth be that which governs us. Um, we're mindful, even as we'll look at with Asaph today, that. Uh, Sometimes it's difficult to reconcile what we see, what we experience, and what your word is testified to. And so we, we need your help, Lord. Uh, we need your help to submit to you, to be confident and joyfully so, to recognize, that, again, the goodness of God toward his people and toward his purposes. It will be made clear, perhaps in time, but it will be made clear. Lord, do pray for the church in Lithuania. We thank you for... Um, the fact that the gospel has advanced to all these different regions of the world. We, we think about having just finished the study in the life of Christ and the, the commissioning of the apostles and them going out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the utter ends of the earth and how the, the book of Acts testifies to that very work. We get to just walk through that uh, relatively, comparatively short history that was compacted to the foundation for the foundations of the church and we saw the gospel come to Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth and continuing to advance accordingly and so we we thank you for establishing a testimony there uh, we pray that there would be greater gospel clarity we, we recognize that while truth has advanced uh, uh, perversions and distortions of truth have also prevailed but uh, you have your people so we pray that you'd strengthen them encourage them find them faithful uh, continue to, to multiply them in the, the best of ways, in the healthiest of ways, and uh, give others perhaps a, a heart to, to, to take the gospel to Lithuania. Do pray for their current standing as well in terms of the, the geopolitical sensitivities right now. Um, it's a challenging area for a nation to be in in terms of just the proximity and history and association with other nations. and. Uh, there's sensitivities that become increasingly severe at different times, such as now, and so we do pray that you give them peace, give them wisdom, help them from making um, missteps or um, conducting themselves in an unwise way. We do thank you also as we uh, are mindful of our own nation and the, the mercies you've extended toward us. Uh, we do recognize that our confidence is not in, in courts or governments, legislators or leaders. Uh, we recognize that you rise up and you put down leaders and you orchestrate the affairs of men. And we recognize also with our form of government that we do have uh, a measure of liberty and opportunity and even with that responsibility. And so we thank you that we get to engage and voice our opinion and, and participate and 
Now we thank you for the, the measure of mercy that we've seen. Um, it doesn't cure or resolve the, the problem with the hearts of men that are murderous and selfish and wicked, but it does stay their hand a little bit, a bit more than it was. And so we do ask that you continue to have mercy. And um, while we want to return thanks, help us to also um, long all the more that there would be a, a change of heart and, and redemption of souls and uh, for children that are born that they would come to you quickly um, and that we would be generous and faithful in our gospel testimony to them and to all those that you put in our sphere of influence and now as we engage your word lord we ask that you be our help um, there's a, a, a danger in presuming that uh, because we're familiar or because we've labored or because we're interested or because there's various measures of intellect and ability to follow that we can just uh, exercise a measure of self-dependence and give our thoughts on matters and but this is your word so we ask that you would help us we don't want to be um, anything short of humble we don't want to be anything short of grateful as the psalmist testified we have a, the wonderful word of god before us and it sheds light and so we ask lord would you shed light would you open our eyes would you be our help or teach us and Give us grace in this time that it would be beneficial, even as, uh, again, Asaph's engagement with your presence was beneficial. May it also be beneficial to your people in this time. And again, uh, please be our help. Find us faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you well know, we are in a transition between books of study in our first hour. Um, actually, we're in a transition both hours now. Uh, we we never quite synchronized things uh, perfectly, but we, we got pretty close this time. So in the second hour, we finished the life of Christ. We're transitioning to hermeneutics. In our first hour, we've been in the book of Jude for a number of weeks and months. And we're going to head to the book of James. In the meantime, Pastor Matt has developed a, a special series of messages focusing on the deity of Christ. Uh, messages that I think, we're, I think it'd be safe to say were providentially forged in terms of opportunities and experience that pressed him to think about matters that I think we take for granted. We, we tend to think, well, of course, the deity of Christ, and of course I can defend it. But there are things to be thought through and wrestled with, and, and he has a, a skill that he's developed in that area, and he's been sharing that. And it's a series that can really serve as a complement to both our work in Jude and our long-time study of the life of Christ, which, again, we just wrapped up. Now, while Pastor Matt will finish uh, his special series in a few weeks, I'm going to walk us through a psalm, uh, specifically Psalm 73, over this week and next week. That wasn't really the plan until last night. Now, working on Psalm 73 was the plan, but breaking it up over two weeks is, um, I hope, will be proving to, to be a mercy to you. Um, uh, I sometimes uh, test your endurance, and uh, there's a measure of wisdom with not testing people too frequently. Um, and so, and also to, to make sure we're properly prepared for the Lord's Supper today. Um, it would be unfortunate if I uh, brought you to the point of fatigue when you need to really give special attention to these matters. So that being said, two weeks in Psalm 73, uh, a psalm that I think is really outstanding and really precious. I've done a lot of work in the psalms. Uh, there was just, again, providential circumstances, but they've been a, a means of grace to my life. And it's a psalm specifically that stands out in a unique way, a unique way because it, it presses us to consider something that is naturally present, but we don't want to, it's one of those, we don't want to talk about the fact that we, it's present or that we struggle, but specifically consider how we are evaluating our world in view of God's enduring truths. 
But you might think, well, that's what we do all the time. Isn't that the point of teaching and instruction and discipleship and applying truth? Well, it really presses us differently here. So how do we merge and marry and understand God's enduring truths in view of our present circumstances? Specifically, um, how are we resolving the tension of the prosperity of the wicked and the troubles of the righteous? It seems backwards. We're Psalm 1's people, right? It seems backwards. It's the, it's the righteous that prosper. It's the wicked that perish. Now, that being said, we're also a fellowship that's uh, fairly well acquainted with the Psalms. I mentioned that I've spent a good bit of time in the Psalms. Uh, that was just a, an opportunity that uh, I kind of pressed myself into, and I'm grateful for it. Um, it's been a long-time practice of uh, Grace Bible Church to read a psalm or a portion of a psalm every Sunday morning as part of our worship service as well. So it's part of who we are. We read and give reflection of the psalms. We pray in response to the psalms. We think about the psalms. And we take the opportunity on Wednesday evenings for, I don't know, all this year, I guess, maybe before, um, to, to reflect on what we're going to read that next Sunday. And so when we read Psalm 119, uh, the portion that we read today, well, we looked at it on Wednesday. We want to prepare ourselves and give a, a high level of view so that we can be better prepared to pray and think about it as we incorporate it into our worship service. It's not just a tag on, oh, there's the Psalms part. It's, no, we're familiar with it. There's a sweetness to it. And um, this year alone, we've given a lot of attention um, to the Psalms, as it were. Um, we've received a unique measure of attention beginning with Psalm 1 on January 9th. It was very intentional. I wanted to lay the foundations for 2022, and I wanted to, to establish that we're going to be a Psalm 1 people, a people that meditate and dwell on those scriptures, that, that think about it, that, that drive our roots deeply, kind of like a tree planted by streams of water, or maybe as a, a really nice logo, a tree driving its roots into the scripture, right? That's the nature of who we want to be laying the foundations again on January 9th. And then February 20th, we built on those foundations as we walked through Psalm 19. And so we talked about there's complementary psalms in different ways. Some of them are grouped together. Some are royal. Some are uh, wisdom. Some people group them in a variety of ways, and they do so out of a measure of skill. Um, sometimes it's subjective, but we see Psalm 1 and Psalm 119 is uniquely fixed on the scriptures and specifically meditating, thinking about extolling the scriptures. So we gave special attention to that psalm on February 20th. And then April 17th, we celebrated Christ's resurrection with a study of another psalm, Psalm 16, um, specifically uh, referencing the, the Davidic prophecy that you won't let your Holy One undergo decay. And so then for several months also, we've been working through Psalm 119. Uh, we've done that on Wednesday evenings. We've um, done that um, on Sunday mornings in terms of our reading. We see here Psalm 119, 129 to 136, which was our reading for this morning. And as you well know, our study in Psalm 119 has also brought us uh, uh, to a place of reflecting on the, the glories of the Scripture. So Psalm 1 and 19 and 119 kind of all pair together in a very intentional way. And here we see, as we read this morning, the, the psalmist is doing something that he consistently does in a variety of ways. He's extolling and uh, ex responding to the wonderful Word of God. And in this, uh, he makes affirmations of the truths that he states here. He states, uh, among many other things, the unfolding of your Word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. 
It's a really precious uh, passage for some of us because, you know, the Lord gifts us all differently, but he opens our eyes. If you want to study and understand the scriptures, he does make them plain. He does draw truth out for us. Part of the reason we pray the way we do, we, we're dependent upon the Lord to see and understand his word. Now, speaking to this particular verse in this section of Psalm 119, James Montgomery Boyce stated the following in his commentary on this passage. He stated, reading the Bible throws light on life on all its problems and trials, on the confusing behavior of other people, on what is important and what is not, on right behavior, right goals, and right priorities. If you have not found this to be true, it's because either you are not really studying the Bible or you are approaching it in a superior vein, a superior or vain frame of mind, judging it by your own limited views rather than allowing it to judge you. Now, I think that's quite a statement, and I would affirm that I think he's right. I think he's right on that. But sometimes these matters of what the Word of God sheds light on and reveals appears to put us at a point of uh, a place of challenging tension. Um, when again, the challenging tension between truth and experience. So it sheds light. We affirm. We agree. We thank God that He's given us clear understanding of truth. But then we go out and we do life. And we start to wonder, what, why is it not working like I thought it was going to work? I don't know about you, but that's one of my uh, perennial frustrations. You purchase something, and it's not as seen on TV. It looked a lot better on TV, and it worked a lot better. Um, or you, you get your hopes up about something, and it just doesn't, you know, doesn't happen the way you thought it would. You know, that's life. That's products. That's the, the efforts of men. But we're talking about the Word of God. It said it was going to do something. It said certain things were true. And my experience is, I'm just trying to figure that out. And it brings us to a point of tension. And the tension, as is always, is, is our problem. But we still need to reconcile it. Particularly when mindful, of, again, our struggles and needs. We need to have a clear view to the prosperity of the wicked. How, how do we understand that? How do we understand that so often we're praying that the Lord would write the success of the wicked, that he would put a check to things that just aren't right, or so it would appear to be. And this is the very matter that Asaph engages in in Psalm 73. So let's begin by reading it together, and then we're going to walk with Asaph from a place of tension and struggle to ultimately clarity. We will see the clarity, and we're going to allude to the clarity, but ultimately we're going to have to get there next week. And so it's a little plug, come back, because we're going to leave Asaph in a really difficult place. And that's okay because that may be where we are at the moment anyway. And so there's a place of tension, but it will yield to clarity and it will ultimately yield to worshipful confidence and joy. And that's our aim. That's why I love the Psalms. What, is the, what do the Psalms do consistently? Well, they make us better worshipers. They make us better thinkers, better people of prayer. And so Asaph will get there, but we're going to have to do some walking in the process. So Psalm 73, let's read it together. Um, I recognize it may be small, but the good news is it's also in your copy of the scriptures. And so if that helps you, please follow along. But we're going to be reading Psalm 73 together. A Psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the wicked, or envious of the boastful. I saw the peace of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, and they are not stricken along with the rest of mankind. 
Therefore lofty pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The delusions of their heart overflow. They scoff and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongues go through the earth. Therefore, his people return there to his place and waters of fullness are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and reproved every morning. If I had said, I will recount thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I gave thought to, to know this, it was trouble in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You caused them to fall to destruction. How they become desolate in a moment. They are completely swept away by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like an animal before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will lead me, and afterward take me in glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart, may f my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have set Lord Yahweh as my refuge, that I may recount all your works. I think as you reflect on this psalm, and again, you could go to some Davidic psalms, and um, just this last week I was meeting someone I was um, assisting with... Uh, an unexpected project. Uh, Denise uh, has a dear friend that's an artist, and in the true sense, some people would say they're artists, and they just, they're just magnificent doodlers, but this is a real artist. Um, had a, a show in, in, in the, um, Douglasville, and, and they needed some assistance. Uh, they were leaving paintings, very, very, very expensive paintings, leaning against their vehicle while they were loading and unloading. So I was assisting for a little bit, and one of the persons that was helping with me, they were introducing me, and they said, this is David. Like, oh, what a good name. Yeah, it is. It really is. Um, I think David's a great name. I think we, um, there's value to namesakes, as it were. But the guy said, yes, I love the name David because he was the most real person in the scriptures. You have the whole range of experiences that David had. And there's something to be said for that. We can relate to him. We can see struggle and progress and joy and growth. But I think mindful of the range of the Davidic Psalms, I think also Asaph was incredibly real in his experience. And I think this is perhaps one of the most honest and straightforward Psalms that we could read. Asaph is painfully honest, and in a way that most all of us are very familiar, just maybe not something we're willing to express. And it, it's, it's because it's hard enough to struggle, right? It's hard enough to struggle when striving to do right. But to struggle and see that the wicked are by all accounts seeming to prosper, that's really hard. It's really hard to seek after holiness, after being found faithful and being godly and renewing our minds. But to do that and then to see the wicked prospering, boy, that's really challenging. And Asaph doesn't just uh, piddle around it and kind of allude to it. He just flat engages it. And he says, well, this is where I was. And I really didn't handle it well. I struggled. 
Now, that being said, in terms of the struggling of the righteous and the prosperity of the wicked, fold the theology of Psalm 1 into this equation, and the tension potentially increases even more. Not because Psalm 1 is problematic. Again, we're very familiar with Psalm 1. I hope we are. We, again, we studied it. It was a foundational passage. We memorized it over a period of several weeks and months. But because we don't always understand, or perhaps better stated, appreciate its application as it pertains to the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Remember, that was a major thematic development of Psalm 1, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. And sometimes we don't understand that which is really rather straightforward otherwise. And what I mean by this is that Psalm 1 is, again, it's very clear about establishing those two ways or two paths, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The psalm opens with the way of the righteous, a way that's expressed as blessed by Yahweh, which is, you don't get any more superior, better standing than that, to be blessed by Yahweh, a blessing that culminates with the image of a richly fed and therefore richly producing tree, because such is the path of the righteous. Therefore, quote, and whatever he does, he what? He struggles? Whatever he does, he stumbles. What does it say? Whatever he does, he prospers. Okay. Then comes the firmly contrasting outcome of the way of the wicked, which is expressed as chaff that is blown away in the wind. They have no standing in judgment and no company among the righteous, a contrast that drives us to the firm and clear conclusion that, quote, for Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? Will succeed, will thrive, will what? Perish. Prospering and perishing. Well, the, 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 the division lines are very, very clear, right? We know who falls where. We know what path leads where. And these are all things that we know to be true, all things that Asaph knew to be true as well. When Psalm 1 was written versus Psalm 73, I don't know. We can't say, well, you know, of course, 1 and 73. 73 came after 1. I don't know. We don't know the historic author of one. We don't know the historic, we do know the historic author of 73. Uh, but we have, to, we have to wrestle with that. But what we do know is that Asaph knew these things to be true. And yet Asaph struggled to see, to understand, and to appreciate these truths for a moment as he gazed upon the wicked with, of all things, envy. He gazed at the wicked with envy and even drifted to the point of brutish embitterment. But he recovers. That's why Asaph can, is very much a hero-like figure. He's not just a, he's not a tragic figure. He's a hero-like figure. He's still faithful. He struggled, but he recovers. He has his bearings restored. He begins to think rightly again, and he appreciates perhaps all the more clearly now that the foundational truths of Psalm 1, they do hold fast. So if we struggle there, we have to recognize where does the struggle lie? It lies with us. Because they will hold fast, that the righteous are blessed and the wicked will perish, no matter how things might appear now. So with this tension and its resolution in view, we walk through, we're going to walk through Psalm 73 in eight parts, nine if you count the header, and now maybe you're starting to become a little bit more sympathetic while we divided this over two weeks. Not all parts will receive equal time, but they will each help frame the flow of our engagement together. So Psalm 73 will begin with the header. And we learned that this was a psalm of Asaph. So again, I almost stumbled myself and said, we don't know the historic author. We do. We know a good bit about Asaph, actually. We don't know who wrote Psalm 1. We can have some ideas and speculation. But based off of the header and historic, uh, um, I'd say, veracity that usually comes with the headers, we know that this was Asaph. 
and that this was a psalm of him, and that he wrote 12 uh, psalms in the Psalter, at least ones that are attributed to him in a variety of ways. Maybe he wrote more, but those were the ones that were identified with him. And from what we can deduct about him from the range of references to him in the scriptures is that Asaph was musically gifted. He's a musically gifted Levite who was entrusted with leading music in the temple, specifically the temple choirs. So this is a a theologically sound, worship-oriented, faithful man. He's truth-rich. He's expressing truth through song. He's leading other people in truth through song, leading other people to worship. And what we do not know, though, is the immediate or surrounding context involving the struggle that he articulates here. We clearly know that he's struggling. We know there's wicked. We know he's struggling. They're prospering. Who, where, and why, we, that we don't know. Even so, he expresses with this such a rich balance of honesty and clarity that it makes the nature of his experience all but universal to persons across time and culture, including ourselves. I know there's a danger to be like, oh, I'm going to grab that text and going to make it my own. It's my life verse. Well, sometimes there's value to that. Sometimes we need to hang on to truth and say, yes, I want to think and conduct myself like that. And we can, have, we can jettison all views to historic precedent and, and good hermeneutics, as Frank will be directing us to today and over the next several weeks and months. But this is one, there's an easy transferable principle. Easy transferable principles in terms of life and experience. So having established that Asaph is the attributed author, we come to the introduction and a declaration of God's faithfulness to the righteous. Here we see that Asaph begins the psalm with an affirmation that supersedes any immediate circumstance and that perhaps, uh, excuse me, that appears to form the the nucleus of his struggle. If you want to understand why did Asaph struggle, it's right here. And it's maybe not necessarily in the form that you would have expected. Maybe you thought the body of the psalm, that's why he's struggling. Now he's struggling here because of this introductory verse and for this very reason, namely that God is good to Israel. God, who is independently good, demonstrates a precise application of his goodness to his people, Israel. And as we well know, the sweep of redemptive history is filled with God's caring for his people, right? It's what he does. He's a good shepherd. He's a good, faithful Lord. He cares for his people. He's he's exercising his goodness through his covenant or steadfast love for them, a covenant or steadfast love that so often expressed, uh, is expressed in his abundant mercy you know, throughout the Psalms. Lord, have mercy. And he does over and over again. And his provisions and his quickness to forgive and restore and his joy in revealing himself to them and his freeing them to live in the light of his truth and blessings. We can concur with Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel. And more precisely, God is good to those of Israel who are pure in heart those who walk in covenant obedience and therefore should fully expect the, expect the blessings thereof. And it was this walk, this path of the righteous, which Asaph would have identified with as his own. I think he would have been a righteous man, a man on the Psalm 1 path. And therefore, it was this walk, this path of the righteous, that proved to be the reason that Asaph struggled with his experience as it compared to those who were not pure in heart who had no regard for God's covenant or the blessings assured in its joyful obedience. So it is this foundational truth, this affirmation of God's goodness and the blessings that accompany it that brought Asaph to a point of crisis. And as we'll ultimately see, it is in God's goodness that we, like Asaph, will also find the resolution to the crisis. Because not only is God good to the pure in heart, 
but his very nearness proves to be their good and by extension ours as well. So it's God's goodness that we struggle with and it's God's goodness that brings resolution. Now, I hope I was clear because there's a danger in anticipating the language that follows that, well, I know Asaph's going to struggle because I know what happens right after this. And so we might view this opening verse as a formality. I know that you've argued that it's the, the crux, the thesis, the foundation, the reason for struggle, but he's declared God's goodness. And now he's going to declare how bad the wicked are. That's the point of struggle. Well, again, this isn't simply an introduction to acknowledge and move on from. But if that's how you view this opening verse, then you'll miss why I was trying to, to press us on this here, because Asaph was not unique in his struggle, and neither are we. So we need to understand the nature of this struggle. So once more, let me articulate this as best I can. The tension, the tension that Asaph experienced was developed around the perceived experience of the wicked, but more importantly, that tension is rooted in one's view of God. Because the tension was ultimately the difficult experiences of Asaph contrasting with the seemingly positive delights of the wicked, all in the framework of God being good to the righteous. Therefore, Asaph's experiences and observations were appearing to challenge that opening affirmation that God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart, because he is good to his people. Then how do we explain Asaph's personal experiences and observations that follow? That's the tension, is God's goodness. So ultimately, we don't need to view uh, what's to come as a struggle with the prosperity of the wicked so much as a struggle with the goodness of God in view of the prosperity of the wicked and the struggles of the righteous. Because that was Asaph's problem, and it's probably a lot of ours as well. Maybe not right now, but you've probably dipped there, drifted there. And again, maybe not today, but this is a struggle. It's, it's like an old injury. And some of our little ones are old enough to have old injuries. They're accruing them now, and they'll be visiting them later. So old injuries that, that flare up, and what do they do? They consume our attention with pain at the most inopportune time, and we need to see it for what it is. We need to recognize, ah, that's what that is, and so we can respond accordingly, so we can address it. So we can contend against it in a way that produces a proper and worshipful outcome just as it did for Asaph, because this is like an old injury that we, we're always going to struggle with in some measure. Lord, I'm walking in joyful obedience but that joyful part is really struggling. Because look at them. Look how well they're doing. It is hard. And so we need to renew our mind accordingly. So with this foundation in view, we come to verses 2 and 3, which speak to Asaph's struggle with the tension of true and immediate perception. A tension that expresses itself in a really a most tragic way. The envying of the wicked. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled... My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the boastful. I saw the peace of the wicked. Almost stumbled, almost slipped. Those are dangerous statements, aren't they? When you think about the context of hiking a few weeks ago. Um, uh, my family and Isaiah were uh, hiking in the Grand Canyon for a little study course there. There's some dangers there if somebody slips or stumbles, isn't there? might be bringing a few persons less um, home, as it were, because there's a danger that you slip, you fall. Boy, they could be really hurt. You may have to have extraordinary measures to recover you. But it's even more dangerous, that language of slipping and stumbling and falling, when you're speaking to the condition of one's soul. He's not saying, I, you know, I almost tripped. He's saying, my soul was in danger. 
So again, when speaking to one's steps here, it appears to be expressing the consistent pattern of one's life. Therefore, when one's steps are rooted in submission to truth, they're firm and secure, which is why Asaph's submission here is quite striking. He had in this moment effectively untethered himself from truth when examining the wicked, and it just about caused him personal harm regarding the consistency and surety of his walk with and before God. And I hope we appreciate the gravity of that statement. It's easy to just keep on going by and be like, okay, God's good, Asaph struggled, the wicked are really thriving, but there's resolution. We don't want to miss this, because there's a gravity to the statement that he expresses here. And it's again, it's not like a person slipping on loose gravel or sand or ice. You know, you have a bit of a scare, and then maybe afterwards you laugh about it. Boy, it looks silly. I'm glad it didn't get hurt worse. Um, no, this is reflecting back in the moment of lacking sure footing before the God of truth and calling his truth into question, as it were. Is, is God really good? Is God really faithful? And Asaph goes so far as to say, is it really even worth it? So this lack of sure footing was humbling. Asaph was conceding that he almost slipped, almost stumbled, almost lost his sure footing in God's truth because he was envious of the boastful. He saw the peace of the wicked. He was in a bad spot. And what is frightening is that it's not all that difficult, again, to find ourselves in the same place. Now, we rightfully speak of guarding our eyes, right? We're trying to be very careful what we see, careful what we take into our minds, careful what we take into our hearts. As again, especially as it pertains to profane and perverse things. But we best also be mindful to guide our, our, our eyes from viewing the boastful and the wicked in an envious manner as well. That's a dangerous disposition to take that in. Now, as we've established, again, Asaph's observations were perceived to be clashing with his understanding of truth. Therefore, what, we, what he knew to be true and what he was experiencing and observing appeared to be in conflict. And with this in view, Asaph was trying to reconcile God's goodness to his people, to those who are pure in heart, with the thriving experiences of the wicked. And again, I cannot emphasize enough how dangerous this was for him and continues to be for us. This is not a tumbling down the stairs. That would be painful. That would be unfortunate. This is, a, this is again, the falling off the mountain. But Asaph does make a most precious qualification, and it does merit attention here. Does he say, I stumbled a few times and I've recovered? No. He almost stumbled. He almost slipped. And when we could pause and celebrate that he got his footing, I'm glad that Asaph's back on track, as it were, or that thankfully his stumbling and slipping were not as bad as they could have been, I'm more persuaded that we can safely but carefully read between the lines for a moment and recognize that he was kept. I almost stumbled. I almost tripped. I almost um, slipped, as it were. And I see this with a view to our work in Jude, where we're charged to do what? To keep ourselves to keep others, to keep one another, all the while that we will be kept by who? God. He will keep his own. He will keep his beloved. He will finish his work in us. And I would argue that's a reflection of his goodness, that he keeps us. A reflection of his goodness while we struggle because we're not sure just how good God is being to us when the wicked thrive and we struggle. And such is the absurdity of sin and doubt that we struggle to see God's goodness all the while it's His goodness that's keeping us from stumbling. So in the midst of our struggling with God's goodness, it's His goodness that's keeping us. But doubt does come, and it should not surprise us that doubt gave way to envy. Again, an embarrassing admission. So on Wednesday night, I was teaching through Psalm 119, 
and I came across a portion that I just scratched from my notes because I thought, mm, I'm not going to concede that I was coming to a conclusion that nobody else came to until Frank did, and that made me feel better. And then I was like, oh, I did too. I, I, I thought that, and it, we were wrong. And you would have seen it much sooner than I did, but because we don't want to admit to things that like, ah, oh, I, I almost said something that wasn't accurate. I almost said something that wasn't a fair representation of the text. It can be embarrassing. And this is a profoundly embarrassing admission, but one that we can plainly connect the dots to as it pertained to Asaph and as it pertains to us. Because it was not simply a, a matter of, of simply reconciling the problem of evil's welfare, but rather evil's welfare in view of his own. And truthfully, this selfish component is usually the true wedge people have when attempting to understand wickedness and evil. It's when tragedy is at their doorstep that they begin bemoaning the complexity of God's goodness in the face of evil. All of a sudden now, where was God? Well, you didn't ask that when everybody else was struggling. Welcome to the struggle. But here he is. He's experiencing these things. He's recognizing it's my struggle. I'm perceiving these things as God good. Yes, he is. Why? Because he's keeping me and because his truth supersedes these things. So once more, ultimately, Asaph's problem was not so much the prosperity of the wicked, but a deficient view to God's goodness provoked him to want what they had. And if you think I may be reading too much into this, I understand the problem in this manner because later Asaph goes on to express his restored and proper disposition as it pertains to God's goodness and what he has found to be truly satisfying. And we see in verse um, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. And so we see that he struggled, he wanted, and ultimately where's the resolution is that he had, that God was good and that he has God and therefore he is satisfied. That's the cure to envying the wicked, is a proper view to God's goodness and the sufficiency thereof. Therefore, deficiency in perspective here creates an appetite for lesser and even carnal things. When we want something less than God himself, it will produce a desire, an envy for the wicked. It will produce struggling and straying and wondering. So we can concede that there's perhaps a, a reasonable measure of tension here, as it is the blessed man, the righteous man, who is supposed to be prospering in all that he does. We've established that. The wicked who are being driven away like chaff in the wind, we've established that. However, the matter is not so simply resolved. And as we peel this apparent prosperity back, we'll now go on to see in 4 through 12 that peppered throughout these elements of the wicked's prosperity are shameful things that demonstrate that it's a poisoned prosperity, not a commendable or desirable one. Some things are certainly attractive, but they keep terrible and terrifying company. Further, it appears that in this section, the Asaph was viewing prosperity exclusively with a view to the temporal elements of life. So again, in verses 4 through 12, we'll observe the apparent welfare and good fortune of the wicked. He states, For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, and they are not stricken along with the rest of mankind. Now, we first note in verse 4 and 5 that the wicked seem to be enjoying a rather prosperous and carefree experience. And with this, Asaph began providing the rationale for his succumbing to envy. The wicked appeared to have it so very good. Their experience was painless, and they were literally fat and happy. And this is not some derogatory way of speaking about these persons. He was stating that their bodies are fat and sleek, they're healthy, they're prosperous, and doing, they're rather doing quite admirably, as it were. Their appearance would have been indicative of their abundance and a reflection that they suffered no need. And with this, Asaph continued with his reasons for envy. He stated that the wicked were not in trouble as others were, and that they did not suffer the same struggles. And listening to this, it would almost appear that the wicked had avoided the universal experiences of man in this fallen world. No trouble, no toil, no misery, and no weariness. 
They were not stricken, not touched, not afflicted. But here their expressions of great prosperity takes a definitive turn and becomes more plainly seen. It's clear that their comfortable context had welcomed an uncomfortable delight in sin. As he continues, therefore, lofty pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulges from fatness. The delusions of their heart overflow. They scoff and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue goes through, through the earth. Now we see that description. And maybe you don't like the, some of the elements of it and some, some of them are not quite as relatable to you, but you see a very, very prosperous, successful person, but you also see a profound measure of of arrogance and pride and wickedness. And with that, is it not jolting that such persons would be envied? I want to be like them. I want to have what they do. Now keep that in mind as you consider the fact that Asaph is not especially unique in this regard. And again, neither are we. We need to see the sin for the absurdity that it is. Therefore, I think it may be fair to ask, what are we envying and at what great cost? What have we said, you know, Lord, you are good. I just wish I had that. It doesn't make sense when we frame it for what it is. Now this portion of the text here in verse 6 begins with, therefore, or in light of the wicked man's prospering, lack of pain, fat sleepness, lack of troubles and suffering, they were not only proud, but they were, you could say, proudly proud. The wicked were so proud that they were putting their pride on immediate display. They were adorning themselves with pride as though it were a necklace. They were also, in view of their prosperity, a violent company and were being adorned with violence as one would be adorned with clothes. In other words, their violence was effectively a wholly consuming identity for them. Therefore, pride and violence marked the ones who had what appeared to be so attractive and yet it was clearly not. Further, this demonstrates yet once more the nature of sin and what a terrible disservice it does for its host, as it were. When not experiencing the struggles of others, they willfully go on to fully give themselves to such vile actions as these that are listed. Yet this was and continues to be the plight of the one that neither knows or is known by God, because this is the way of the wicked. And as peculiar as it is to the righteous, that the righteous is prone to envy it, that the way of the wicked is so clear, and yet... Those who are righteous, there's a susceptibility to envying it. That's when we allow our eyes to drift and our hearts to stray from its grounding in truth because while all external perceptions are of abundance and good fortune, the corruption and perversions of character plainly reveal that all is not right. That's not real prosperity because what does sin do? It kills and it destroys. It's a clue that this, quote, good fortune is not sourced in God's blessing. And that gives us a measure of relief. God is good to Israel. He's not good to the wicked. So don't confuse what they're experiencing as goodness, as blessing. That helps us frame our appreciation of what's happening here. And from here, Asaph then goes on to also describe the wicked as the ones who are clearly abusing with their words. Words which you well know are an immediate reflection of one's heart. That's Jesus clearly expresses that. And a subject that we'll come to and we, uh, when we walk through James, he gives significant attention to such matters in his letter as well. But here we observe the speech of the wicked was an arrogant cocktail of scoffing and oppression and pride. And as though applying such speech toward man was not enough, they aim their verbal arrows toward the Lord who is in the heavens and does what he pleases. Their abuses therefore range from the heavens to the breadth of the earth. 
and yet these offenders are not for lack of company. As Asaph states, quote, Therefore his people return here to his place, and waters of fullness are drunk by them. Now one would think that such offenses would repel others. Arrogance, pride, ugly, uh, ugly conduct, but the nature of fallen man is that he's attracted to the arrogant defiances and wicked engagements of others. We see this plainly in Paul's opening indictment in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper, having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, And although they know the righteous requirements of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So frighteningly, so many not only turn toward the wicked, but they also find no fault in them. And such is the nature of the character of those who surround themselves with the persons that Asaph is struggling with, and such is the nature of the persons that Paul speaks to as well. Now finally, in verses 11, Asaph brings their verbal offense to their logical climax, um, overt derogatory critiques of God in the form of rhetorical questions. Not even subtle attempts to diminish the Lord's authority and to dress down his omniscience as though it were deficient. They say, quote, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Reflecting on this uh, statement, Willem van Gimmeren concludes, They do not deny the existence of God, but limit him in his knowledge and wisdom. From their perspective, God is only concerned with religion, piety, and good deeds, and does not punish those who by their own schemings and plotting take advantage of business and political opportunities. A lot of faces that pop into mind, very public figures that pop into mind, as they say that basically, in other words, God is small and he has his place. He's the sovereign over the fiefdom of piety. That's where God reigns. The little fiefdom of piety. But he has no say about the gears that make the wheels of prosperity and good fortune go around. He has no regard or authority in the expressions of good fortune that the wicked have so engorged themselves upon. And with this, Asaph concludes this portion of the psalm with verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Here, it is as if Asaph is serving as the MC, as it were, to the, the conference of wicked persons. And he's calling everyone to order. He's saying, behold, direct your attention here. These are the wicked. They do not mind their mouths, but they live rather well. Loose lips and a comfortable life, always at ease and increasing in riches. No troubles, no worries, no pains, just increasing prosperity and welfare. And so here we have it. Again, the wicked are always at ease, always secure, always carefree, or so it would seem in the immediate. And such is the nature of confusing temporal prosperity and a wickedly deficient view of God with blessing. And that's the problem, confusing temporal prosperity framed uh, framed in perversity and a wickedly deficient view of God and understanding that as blessing. Now that may not have been clear, so let me try that again. This valuation of the wicked is confusing temporal prosperity, temporal prosperity, things that are only fleeting and and not of an enduring nature, 
things that are framed in perversity and a wickedly deficient view of God, and they're treating those things as blessing. Because if that is blessing, then we do have a problem. Then God is not good to only Israel, but he's good to the wicked, and he's good in a way that is perverse. So we have to take that off the table. That's not true. And so there's a confusion in terms of what is of enduring value, what is blessing, and how does it work itself out? Or maybe we could say that even more simply, they sure looked blessed, but they ain't. They're not blessed. And that brings a little bit of resolution to this struggle when we look and we say, Lord, I'm on the path of the righteous. I'm on the path that, de uh, that delights himself in the law of Yahweh and in your law I meditate day and night. And all that I do, I'm supposed to prosper. And yet they're prospering and the issue is that they're not. And the fact is that God is being faithful. And we just have a little bit of attention we've got to work through. And that's okay. And it absurds. And, and when we look at this and we see calling what the wicked do and calling them prosperous and calling them experiencing blessing, it really sounds absurd when we just shed a little bit of light on it. But it's proven an enduringly powerful tactic of the enemy. And here I'd remind you of Jude 1.5. Pastor Matt's made reference to it, and I was very grateful for that, and I'm going to make reference to it once more. Jude 1.5, it's early in the letter, obviously, and he states, Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And we think, wow, what did their unbelief look like? Because we know what the nature of their circumstances were. The nature of their circumstances were the mighty right hand of God delivered them out of Egypt and did something that had never been done in history and that everybody looked back to throughout the Old Testament to say that was powerful, magnificent, and an expression of God's glory un in an unparalleled fashion. So what did their unbelief look like? Well, early on it demonstrated itself as crowds of people expressing their cravings for the garlic and onions of Egypt. That's what unbelief looked like. The mighty right hand of God doing what had never been done before, delivering a people, a nation from within a nation, and sending them aside and putting the affection upon them. And their unbelief expresses itself as garlic and onions. The garlic and onions of Egypt. You know, the food provided by their murderous oppressors. Food that in the framework of discontent and lust for comfort appeared more attractive than the blessings of God, which were quickly forgotten to be miraculous, beyond sufficient, and kind. You know, because, well, after all, it was just bread and water. And Egypt had its garlic and onions. So now we're thinking, who honestly struggles with envy of the wicked? Who, who would frame their thoughts in such a an absurd way to say just bread and water that was manna from heaven they came down and they said what is it exactly let's call it that it's sweet honey bread that dissolves in the next morning and we have to do certain things with it and it's amazing and god provided and somehow that's sufficient for us and water oh yeah it came from the rock or you throw um, something in to make the water not bitter those are miraculous things and to say no but i would prefer the garlic and onions under the oppressors you know the people that i was crying out to god and he heard and delivered me and so we think about that and we think, well, what is blessings and what is prosperity? And we need to maybe reevaluate both. And then as we do that, we start to think to ourselves, well, who honestly struggles with envy for the wicked? That doesn't make any sense. Well, a righteous man who led Israel in worship through song did. A man who seemed to be affirming foundational truths in one moment and then plumbing to the depths of a most peculiar offense to God in the next. A man who states, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, as for Asaph, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had almost slipped, because I was envious 
envious of the boastful. How did that boasting look? What does God know? What can he do? You know, the, the fiefdom of piety, God. I saw the peace of the wicked. And this is where we're going to be. We're going to stop today. Not because I want to leave Asaph in the, the, the lowest part of the psalm. If I did that, I would actually have to cover one more section. He does a theological limbo here, and you start to wonder, Asaph, how low will you go? It gets really quite terrible. But in the Lord's mercy, there's a transformation that occurs. And we're going to finish ourselves today with a measure of tension, though. We're going to get to Asaph uh, working to resolve goodness with his very real circumstances and the experience of the wicked around him. We're going to get to that. But we're going to have to leave it here at a place of tension. And if tension accomplishes anything, I hope it will provoke you to think in what we've worked through to present and to be reasonably bothered. I hope it does bother you that this righteous man envied the wicked, envied them, desired what they had. Asaph, who led others in the worship of God, and yet he struggled here. And as I've expressed a number of times now, I know, uh, I well know, that we have or will struggle in a like manner. You'll go about your day and you'll start to wonder at some point in time, why are they doing so well and I'm walking in joyful, faithful obedience and seeking to do right and seeking to grow in grace and seeking to love others and uh, giving generously, serving others. And I don't experience God's blessing, but they do. You're going to be, you're setting yourself up to be prone to envy the wicked. And because of that, I, I'm all the more grateful that Asaph's story ends with worshipful resolution because that's where we want our story to end. We don't want to be in that place of constant embitterment and tension. And we do live in a measure of tension, and that's okay. But there's a tension with resolution here. The same worshipful resolution that we must pursue ourselves, and it's found in one's encountering the Lord and in submitting to truth that supersedes what we can make of our own experiences. Because while evil would seem to advance unchecked and God's people struggle, it is and will always be true that the blessed man is one who chooses the righteous path. The path of disassociating from the wicked and not envying them. The path of delighting in God's word and not fighting it. The path of knowing God and being known by him. It was true for Asaph and it's true for us. How blessed is the man disassociating from the wicked, delighting in God's word known and being known by God. Is it a difficult place that we found ourselves? Yeah. Can it end with worshipful resolution? Absolutely. How? Find out next week. But that's okay, right? It's okay because a lot of things we live in tension, don't we? Lord, when are you returning? Lord, why are you allowing this? It's an opportunity to exercise faith and confidence and it's not an ignorant faith it's not well you know god's good to israel god's good to his people the wicked seem to prosper but you know just works itself out well you can sound kind of ignorant but this is not an ignorant faith this is a confident resolution in the truth of god superseding what we observe experience and understand and finding that there is resolution all right let's pray lord it, it is hard sometimes to trust you in a way that you desire for us to and that's obviously the, the nature of faith that pleases you sometimes it's trusting you when we don't necessarily have a way of reconciling 
things that don't appear to be as they should be. But here we have before us perhaps the, the plainest example of trusting you when it appears that the wicked is prospering and the righteous is being oppressed because we're about to prepare ourselves under the, the care of Pastor Frank and his instruction and as we consider the Lord's Supper and we, we think about the giving of the Son of Man who was uh, wickedly uh, maligned, falsely accused, physically abused, abused in every other fashion. How can we make sense of that? Talk about a situation where the righteous appears to be far from blessed and the wicked seem to be doing nothing but prospering. And yet we know that our confidence is not in just uh, blindly guessing it all kind of works out and you know God has his ways and we're not really sure and that's okay. You've given us enough clarity, enough understanding. You've demonstrated yourself faithful so many times. And even again in the death of the Son we see that oh, that was glorious. Suffering was necessary because blessing would supersede that. And so we thank you, Lord, for your clear examples. We thank you for your clear provisions. We thank you for the absurdity of sin. Thank you that sin just doesn't make sense when we cast a little bit of light on it. When we think about how the psalmist prayed that the, uh, the, your word gives light, it, it sheds light, it illumines truth, it makes things plain. And I thank you, Lord, that the absurdity of sin has been made clear because we're going to drift toward it. We're going to wonder. Maybe today something's going to happen. We're going to think, is that really worth it? We're going to potentially creep toward what Asaph is about to, as we'll see next week, and just say, you know, was it really worth it? Lord, would you preserve us from such foolishness and help us to be rooted deeply in our confidence in you, not only confident, but worshipfully so. So again, we give thanks to you for your word. We give thanks to you that sometimes it's simple and sometimes it's very plain and understandable very relatable but not only uh, that it's something we can get a hold of but that you use it to transform us and so we ask Lord would you work your work in us and even now prepare us to be a, a proper worshipful people as we transition to a focus on the death of the son and with a view to his return we pray in Jesus name Amen.